I had the joy of growing up with parents who loved Jesus and me and my brother. They came to know Jesus when they were adults, and so I was born into a home of brand new Christians, and they, their faith was very, very important to them. And so they shared that with me and my brother, and to this day, both my brother and I are, are walking with Jesus. And as I felt called more and more into full-time ministry, my parents were behind me all the way. Whether it was going to Venezuela with, with Leanne to be missionaries, or headed out to Colorado to help with a new church plant, or even to go on this church planting journey ourselves of, of finding Waverly and, and planting Riverwood. They've, they've been some of our biggest cheerleaders. They've been huge financial supporters. They've been prayer supporters. It has been awesome to have the support of my parents. But I realized my experience is very different than many people. I, I think of Tara. I knew Tara when she was in college and her senior year of college, she was starting to contemplate the idea of going into collegiate ministry. Well, she told her mom about this. Her mom got a little mad because her mom thought, if you're gonna have to raise money to go and, and work at a college, that's not a real job. And so basically mom told Tara, I will not give you even a penny of support. Isn't that how family goes? Like family has the potential to help you accomplish amazing things. And it also has the ability to absolutely destroy your dreams. I mean, family has the ability to put the biggest smile on your face and also the biggest tears in your eyes. Family can bring you such great sweet joy and yet such horrible, difficult sorrow. I mean, there's a lot of joy when a child is born into a family but there's a lot of pain when that same child, 20 years later, walks away in anger, never to return. And yet, despite the risks, despite the pains, we all are looking for family because I believe God created us to be in one. It's just that when our biological family in, in some aspects rejects us, we often go looking for family in other places. Sometimes we look for it in a sports team or maybe through a group that has the same hobby interests as us. Uh, it, it could be in our politics. It, it could be in all sorts of areas. I, I think of my friend, Steve. Uh, Steve loves Jeeps. Uh, he's a Jeep aficionado. And so he's a part of a Jeep club. And, and he talks about some of the people in his Jeep club as being like brothers. Uh, I, I think of uh, the, the Harlins. They, they, God blessed them with a child who had Down syndrome. They later adopted a little girl who also had Downs. And, and they got involved in an organization that supports parents that have children with Downs. And it's become like a family to them. Even I have to admit that there's times when I'm at meetings with other pastors, especially church planners, and when I'm with them, I just feel kind of a special affinity. I feel like these are my people. It feels like I'm with family. This is why kids get involved in gangs. This is why some people join cults. It's why some people join up with MLM schemes. Because really what they're looking for is family. Because we were made for family. Today, we're going to see Jesus define for us what a true family is. And I think some of what he teaches us is going to be a little surprising because today we're going to discover that family does not come by blood. Uh, family does not come by our race. It does not come by our hobbies and interests, whatever other connections we might have with people. That true family is found through the gospel. 
And I hope today deeply encourages you to be in the family of God and realizing what it means for you for eternity and how it changes the way you live. So as we get ready to go into Mark chapter three, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we get ready to study your timeless word, would you be our teacher today? Open up our hearts and our minds to what you want us to hear, to see, and to think about, and to treasure. Now, Lord, I know that I am a, an imperfect uh, vessel to teach these things. That's why I am so grateful for your Holy Spirit, who's able to take uh, uh, what I say and do far more with it than I could ever hope or imagine. And so God, the people watching this and listening to this, they're, they're your people. You know their stories, you know their names, and I pray that you would teach them in a way that only you can, that these things would embed into their heart and into their minds and would help them to realize that if they're in Christ, they're part of your family. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. If you are a first-time guest with us, uh, we're going to open up the scriptures now to Mark chapter 3. We're going to have the scripture up on the screen for you, but I'm highly going to encourage you, next time you come to Riverwood, whether it's online or when we start meeting at Drosty Hall in person, bring a Bible with you. At Riverwood, we don't care if it's a paper Bible like I'm using or if it's a digital Bible on your phone. If you have a phone and you don't have a Bible on it, download one to it, and that way, next time you're with us, you can use the Bible on your phone. Part of why we want you to have your own Bible is because not only do we open it up every single Sunday and, and read it and study it, but I believe that by using it on Sundays, it gets you into the habit of making it easier to then do it on Monday and Tuesday and every day. Because we really want you to be into the scriptures. Because we believe as you study the word of God, it helps you more, understand more and more the type of life God wants you to live. And I believe that's some of what we're going to see today. Uh, Mark chapter 3, we're going to be reading uh, from verse 20 all the way down to the end of the chapter. So let me begin. Mark chapter 3, verse 20. And then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, oh, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. And then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, uh, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you? And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. There's a uh, old pastor illustration that uh, often gets used about counterfeit money. Uh, it, it's said that when a business wants to teach an employee how to recognize counterfeit bills, that they don't show them a bunch of counterfeits they actually get them to study the real thing in detail because by intimately knowing the real thing, they will more easily be able to identify the fakes. 
today, I would normally be tempted to show you some counterfeit families, some things that I think Jesus is saying, okay, that's good, but that's actually not true family. That's not the deepest form of family. But today, I, I, instead of starting with those counterfeits, I think we need to go and look at what Jesus says is the real thing, what the true family is. And I believe he defines true family for us down there in those ending verses, verses 33 through 35. Um, Mary and her, some of her other sons have shown up and they're calling for Jesus to come out of the house. They, they want to talk with him. And so the, some of the people in the crowd are like, hey, Jesus, uh, your, your mom and your brothers are here. And Jesus stops them and says, verse 33, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. In other words, Jesus is saying that true family are those who do the will of God. But that brings us to a question. What is the will of God? Well, I believe Mark has actually shown us already. Uh, back in chapter one, when he first let us hear from Jesus, these were the first words he had Jesus say in his record of Jesus's life. It's verse 15 of chapter one. Jesus said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And so I believe Mark is saying that the will of God is for us to repent and believe the gospel. That brings us to another question. What is the gospel? At Riverwood, our definition of the gospel is the ongoing story of God redeeming broken and imperfect people and restoring them into the perfect and complete image of Jesus. It is when a person realizes that God so loved the world, he sent his one and only son, that Jesus, God the son, came down to earth, took on human form, lived a sinless life, but went and died a sinner's death. And by dying on the cross, the penalty against us, the penalty for sin was paid off. We could have that sin now released off of us, we're forgiven, and we could come back into a relationship with our creator, with God the Father. And so when a person believes this gospel, this good news, they're now doing the will of God. And now because of this relationship with their heavenly father, they want to do the will of God on an ongoing basis. And so I believe Jesus is saying that if you are in the gospel, then you are true family. You see, Jesus knows that the spiritual bond is one of the greatest bonds we could ever have. And that is why many churches will call each other brother and sister, because they're realizing that the, what we have here in the spiritual realm through the gospel is the tightest bond we could ever hope for. And that's why you, you may have noticed that sometimes when I talk about Riverwood, I don't just talk about us as a church. I'll call us the Riverwood family, because I want us to realize that we're not just a church in the eyes of the culture. You see, our culture defines church as a building. Uh, or they will define it as a Sunday service. But I believe Jesus defines the church like a family, which means that like a family, we need to celebrate together. We need to cry together. We, we pray for one another. We, we care for one another. We worship together. We are a family. And so that means if, if you're part of the Riverwood family, you, you come, you're, you're attending here online, your family. I don't want you to think that you have to go through our Riverwood 101 class to become a partner before you're officially family. 
In my mind, Riverwood 101, becoming a partner, is merely saying, hey, I'm part of this family. I want to take my commitment deeper. I want to help move the mission of this church forward. I want to help take care of the family. It's just, it's just taking a, that step deeper, saying, hold me accountable to this because this is important. But if you attend on Sundays, you're family. And that's why we extend invitations into our growth groups. It's why we extend invitations to go and serve with us. Many times, some of us, we, we invite people to, to just come and hang out. If you are part of our family, then you're family. Which means if we're going to be a healthy family, we always have to make room for more. You realize that a, a healthy family, when they have a baby, they always find a way to incorporate the baby into the life of that family, no matter how many kids they already have. A, a healthy family always finds a way to be able to incorporate a new son-in-law, a new daughter-in-law. A, fam a family always finds a way to fit another chair around the table, another person into the house. That's what a good family does. And so for us to be a healthy church family, it means we have to be ready to welcome people in. Now, I, I realize that you cannot have a deep, emotional, relational connection with every single person that comes. Like if, if Riverwood were to grow to be several hundred people, you're not gonna be able to know everyone on a deep, intimate level. It doesn't mean though that we can't still keep our arms open and always have room for one more because that's what a healthy family does. Because a healthy family, a healthy church family, I should say, is centered on the gospel because they realize that true family is formed through the gospel. All right, so that I believe is Jesus's kind of thesis statement in this, that true family is found in the gospel. So now I wanna go on, I wanna look at some things that we often think are family, and in some aspects they actually are, and there's good things that we're about to see, but they're not the ultimate. They're not true family. And the first one I wanna point out is that true family is not biological. True family is not biological. Uh, last week we saw Jesus growing in popularity. We'd already seen back in chapter one, he grew in popularity, popularity in Capernaum. Uh, now we saw last week that he was growing in popularity in the region. The people were coming from all over the place to see him. Well, just like any popular celebrity or, or musician, they always have some detractors. There, there's some people who, they're, they're just not fans. And Jesus had some people who were not fans. It's just the surprising thing is that the first non-fans that Mark points out to us are his family. I mean, look at it there in verse uh, 20 and 21. Jesus has just gotten done being up on the mountain. He's named his disciples. They come back down and it says they went home and a great crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. All right, so Jesus is busy teaching. He's busy healing. The disciples are right there helping him out. And they're so busy, they can't even find time to eat. When suddenly Jesus' family shows up in verse 21, and it says that they came to seize him. In other words, to get him, to take him out, because they were saying he is out of his mind. Why, why was his family thinking this? Well, why are they trying to seize him? I suspect that maybe because, as we see in verse 22, the religious leaders were against him. In verse 22, we see it's not just some of the religious leaders around Capernaum. Like, there's some people from Jerusalem, like the big kahunas. They made their way up to go and check this guy out, and they don't approve. And, and so because the, the main guys, the big boss, is saying, uh-uh, this guy's not good, perhaps this is bringing some shame onto Jesus' family. And, and so maybe they're trying to like go and seize him to pull him out in a sense to like maybe save themselves or, or maybe they fear for Jesus and what could happen. And so maybe they're trying to step in to save him. 
But th think about it. If, if you had a loved one who committed a, a heinous crime, a horrible murder, you would probably want them to be declared clinically insane rather than receive the death penalty. Because that way they would remain on this earth a while longer for you to continue to see them and love them and hope for their healing and their repentance and their restoration. I, I wonder if that's what's going on with Jesus' family. They're, they're not wanting bad things to happen to him. So maybe they're coming to seize him to maybe rescue him from this shame. But you think of all people, it, it would be Jesus' family that would be his biggest fans. That, that they would know. I mean, because after all, it was Mary and Joseph who had the, the dreams. You know, I mean, Mary had the, the angel appear to him. Joseph had the dream. They knew that this was the Messiah. I mean, it's Mary and Joseph who were at the temple eight days after the birth of Jesus to have him circumcised. And both Simeon and Anna, two different prophet, uh, a prophet and a pre prophetess, come at separate times and they prophesy over Jesus. I mean, they had confirmation that this is the Messiah. And then they, even when he was, Jesus was 12 years old, they lose track of him as they're on their way back from Jerusalem, back to Nazareth. They head back to Jerusalem. They find him in the temple talking with the priests as a 12-year-old. And he knew as much as them, if not more. If anyone should have known Jesus could teach like this, it, it should have been Mary and, and her family. If anyone would have known that he could perform miracles, it, it should have been them. But maybe they didn't think he'd look quite like this. Maybe Mary did, and, and this is more Jesus's brothers. I mean, think about it. If, if you grew up and your brother was like, you know, saying how great he was, you'd probably just roll your eyes like, ah, there's no way. But besides, Jesus is kind of doing some things and saying some things that is alluding to the idea that, that he's God. And maybe they're thinking, oh no, he's gone crazy. When uh, Leanne and I were in Venezuela working at the Missionary Kids School, one of my responsibilities was to lead worship for our English-speaking uh, church service on the school campus every Sunday. And so I had different students and staff who uh, signed up to, to volunteer to help out. And so I would schedule them, and then we would have a practice on Thursday nights. So one Thursday night, I'm sitting at the piano, and I've got a couple of musicians around me and a couple of singers, and we're just running through our songs. When all of a sudden, as we're midway through one song, a Venezuelan gentleman walked in. That looked like he was in about his late 50s, early 60s. He walks right up to the piano and just stands there right in the midst of us. And he's just grinning ear to ear. Well, we keep playing our song. And when we reached the end of it, I said hello. And that's about all I knew in Spanish. So I turned to Ashley. Ashley was playing acoustic guitar that night. And I said, hey, could you just ask him if, if he needs something? So Ashley's like, hey, hey, do you need something? Can we help you? And I could tell the guy had said no. But then a conversation took place. And as this short little conversation was happening, I could sense a couple of the other kids who were fluent in Spanish. Well, one of them kind of was trying to stifle a laugh. Another one was rolling her eyes. And then I see Ashley give a big eye roll. And I, I looked at her, I'm like, what'd he say? And Ashley looks at me and says, he would like to thank us for playing him these songs because he's Jesus. Now at Riverwood, we do tell you that we want to see you live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved, but we're not trying to tell you to become Jesus. You can't. There's only one Jesus. And so anytime someone is on this earth, whether they're a 55-year-old Venezuelan guy or a nine-year-old kid or an 80-year-old woman, they're not Jesus, no matter what they think and no matter how much they're convinced. We know that something's not going on right. Maybe that's what's happening with Jesus's family. His brothers are looking at him going, you've lost it, dude. You are not God in the flesh. What is this craziness? And so they're coming in trying to rescue him. This is just evidence to me that the biological family is not the truest family. 
Now, please do not misunderstand me. I am not saying that uh, the biological family, therefore, is nothing. <laughs> Just the opposite. I, I believe it's very, very important. I mean, God is the one who started it, after all. He creates Adam and Eve, tells them to multiply, and, and create family. All right, this, this has been God's pattern. And, and even Jesus valued family. I mean, just look at him on the cross. Here he is with his dying breath. He's nailed to this cross and he looks down and he sees his mom and he sees John, his disciple, basically says, all right, mom, that's now your son. John, that's now your mom. Please take care of her for me. He's caring for her at the end. Oh, and, and by the way, Jesus's brothers who seem to be against him here in Mark 3, they eventually come around and realize it was all true. I mean, if my brother prophesied his own death and then came back from the dead, uh, I, I'd probably start believing that he was the Messiah. In fact, James, one of Jesus's brothers, goes on to become one of the leaders of the church and even goes on to write the book of James that bears his name. And he became one of the biggest proponents for his own brother. Family's important. The biological family is a key thing. It's just not the ultimate thing. Because you see, when parents have children, they're supposed to raise these children up and send them out. And even then, we pass away on this earth and this earthly family, the biologic family, it ends. But spiritual family does not end. It is eternal. That is why for Jesus, it's so more important than mom and my brothers are outside and want to talk to me. I'd rather be here with my spiritual family because this is the family that's going to last forever. This is true family. Now, before we move on to the second not today, I, I, I just want to point one thing out. There are many cults that try to pull their adherents away from their biological families. The, the idea is if they could get them to sever those ties, it allows them as a cult to exert more pressure and more control over those people. I do not believe that is what God calls us to, even though our spiritual family is our truer family. You see, if we really understand the gospel— I think it causes us to lean into those biological ties even more. It should lead you to want to be a better husband or wife. It should lead you to want to be a better uh, parent. It should lead you to want to have a great relationship with your parents, no matter what age you are. Like, it, we should lean into these because what we should long for is that these biological ties would become spiritual ties so that we don't just have a relationship that is of this earth. We have a relationship that moves into the things of heaven, that these brothers and sisters of DNA become brothers and sisters because of Christ. And so I think that, that be, being part of the gospel, uh, of, uh, of God's family, being in the gospel, it should lead us to make the most of our biological families, hoping and praying and working and, and striving for them to become spiritual families. But true family is not biological. The second thing I want to point out to, uh, from this passage is that true family is not racial. True family is not racial. Now, as a white man, I will admit that having been grow, uh, born in Nebraska, grown up in Iowa, I do not look at my fellow white people and think, that's my brother and that's my sister. I, I just don't. However, I do know of people who are in other racial groups, African-American, Hispanic, Asian. And they will look at people who are of the same race as them and they will see them as a brother and a sister. Now let's, let's look at African-Americans for just a second. If you think about the history, the story of the African-American culture, they lived in Africa, they get basically kidnapped and stolen. They get brought over into Western, uh, into Europe and into America where they are in slavery. Slavery existed in America for well over 200 years. 
That is part of their story. And then once slavery was lifted, major segregation continued for, for another like 80 some years. And even then, after supposed segregation ended with the Civil Rights Act, there's been all sorts of discrimination and all sorts of injustices done against people simply because of the color of their skin. When you go through something really, really difficult like that, you basically start seeing them as brothers and sisters. It's like soldiers. When they go through war together, if they survive, there is a bond, a kinship there. They can refer to each other as brothers. And if you were a black man who went through some of those things, you would start to see other black men who probably have gone through similar things as brothers and sisters. Now, we need those kinds of bonds. We need those kinds of relationships. Those are things that can help us come through our most difficult days. But I believe that Jesus here is saying, okay, that's good, but that's not the ultimate. That is not true family. Here's what I mean. Jesus was a Jew, like through and through. And here he is talking in, in verse 22 with some other Jewish leaders. Now, despite what the movies have shown us, Jesus was not a white guy with nice shampooed hair that was blown dry with a hair dryer. He is a first century Palestinian Jew who is just saying, uh, uh, who's saying, I, I am a Jew. I, I, I could have this racial connection with them. And yet they are not family. Because Jesus knows that racial ties are, are not what create true family. You've got to look, Jesus is going through Roman oppression with these guys. I mean, they're of the same race, same, in a sense, kind of DNA. And yet he does not have that family connection with them because to Jesus, it isn't about race. It's about his spiritual family. And so I think Jesus is pointing us uh, out to us here that, uh, that, uh, that true family is not racial. Now, before we move on, I realize we need to stop and talk about a very important set of verses here. Uh, it's found there in verses 28 and 29, and it's caused a lot of people some questions. So I, I don't want to gloss over it and move on. I, I want us to address it for a second. Here, here's what those verses say. This is Jesus talking. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, there are people who've been very bothered by this because as they look at this, this whole thing gets summed up as the unforgivable sin. So first we need to ask, all right, so what is the unforgivable sin? Well, basically Jesus is saying there that here he is doing all of these good things, these powerful things. He's doing these things of God. And yet they're saying these works of God are actually the work of Satan. In other words, these Jewish leaders are saying what is good is actually evil. I mean, here are these Jewish leaders who are supposed to be trying to connect people to God. And here is God standing in their midst and they look at him and they say, you are Satan. Now I know some people who fear that they have done the unforgivable sin. They, they think that maybe I did it back in my past and they're all worried about it. Let me just tell you, if you are concerned that you've committed it, then you haven't committed it. Because if you really had truly committed the unforgivable sin, your heart would be so seared and so calloused, you wouldn't know you did it, you wouldn't care that you did it, and you wouldn't seek any kind of forgiveness. 
just look at these Jewish leaders. I mean, yes, there are some Jewish leaders that end up believing that Jesus really was the Messiah sent by God. They do put their faith in him. But the majority, these ones right here, they don't. We even saw uh, uh, previously at the beginning of chapter three that after Jesus healed the man with the shriveled hand, they went out and began to plot his death and his demise. These guys don't like Jesus. They're not willing to listen to him and they don't care. And so even after they receive word and they hear that he's supposedly raised from the dead, they don't believe it. They don't want to investigate it. They don't want it to be true and they continue to fight against it because they committed the unforgivable sin. And so these guys may have been Jewish men just like Jesus, but these guys could not be any further apart spiritually. And that is why they are not family. So we've seen that family is not biological, nor is it racial. That brings me to my third not. Uh, true family is not connectional. True family is not connectional. Now, what I mean by connectional is these things that we hold in common that connect us with other people. Uh, for instance, uh, politics, um, hobbies, uh, sports team affiliations. I mean, it could be all sorts of things. I've already told you about Steve, who is a Jeep aficionado. He's found connection with people that way. I, I told you about the Harlins, who have a couple of kids with Down syndrome, and they've met others, and they've made you know, family connections that way. Those would be connectional types of families. Now, these connections, I believe, are good. And, and sometimes they can even get closer than a biological family. Yet, as good as these connections are, they aren't true family. They aren't of the deepest kind. Here's, here's what I mean. Jesus not only was racially like these other Jewish leaders, he would have also had some areas in life where he could have had connection with them. I mean, Jesus clearly has a, 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 an interest in theology. He has an interest in the scriptures. He has clearly an interest in God, being that he is God and he's part of the Trinity. And, and so these Jewish leaders, they should also have an interest in teaching and the scriptures and theology. So you'd think they'd get together and say, okay, why did you teach the parable that way? Oh, you know, way, the way I would have said it is, or what about this in the Torah? What do you think this means? And they'd have all these discussions and these guys could become the best of buds. But they don't. Because connectional relationships, as good as some of them can be, it's not true family. Here's where a point I'm trying to get to. If you are a Jesus follower, you have more in common with someone who is also a Jesus follower, even if they look completely different than you. For instance, if you are a Jesus follower who tends to vote Republican, you have more in common on a spiritual level with someone who is a Jesus follower but is registered Democrat than a fellow Republican who's not, who doesn't understand the gospel. You, you have more in common, if you're a Jesus follower who happens to be white, you have more in common with a black Christian that, than you do your, your white neighbor who maybe, who maybe doesn't know Jesus. If, if you are an American citizen, you have more in common spiritually with someone who lives in China or North Korea or Russia or Saudi Arabia than you do with your fellow American who may listen to the same music, root for the same sports team, and wear the same kinds of clothes as you, but doesn't know Jesus. You see, when you put your faith in Christ, when you do the will of God and you repent and believe in the gospel, 
God does a deep work in you and your absolute identity completely changes. You go from spiritual orphan to a son and a daughter of the most high king. So you're no longer like those who are apart from Christ. You are more tied with those who are in Christ, even if on the outside, they look completely different than you. They are true family. And that is why if we are going to be the church God calls us to be, we have to be a family that welcomes people in and always makes room for one more. And yeah, maybe their skin color will be different than ours. Maybe the way they dress will be different than us. Maybe their income level will be a little different than you. Maybe they'll work a very different type of job than you. Maybe they'll have completely different interests and, and hobbies than you. But yet if God is calling them to put their faith in him, they're your family. So to be that church, it means we've got to keep ourselves with our arms open wide. As God moves us into this new building, it is very likely we will have some people come and check us out. They're going to be curious about this church. Got this new building. Maybe something's happening there. We need to be ready emotionally, spiritually to have arms open wide, welcome them in, to give handshakes if that's going to be allowed at that time, but to do whatever we can to let them know you matter to God. So you matter to us. Now, if you've made it this far into this message and you are not a follower of Jesus, I want to say thank you so much for listening and sticking with us. I realized that the entire time I've been talking to those who are already followers of Jesus. But now I want to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in, being a part of this. And now I want you to hear this. I invite you to join the family of God. To do that, it is to do the will of God. And I believe God's will, God's desire is for you to repent of your sin and to believe the gospel. To believe this message that Jesus loved you so much that he came down to earth and he died in your place on that cross so that your sin could be forgiven and you could come back into a relationship with your heavenly father, with your creator. God loves you so much. He did all this for you. And when you put your faith in this story, you believe it to be true, then at the core of who you are, everything changes. You go from spiritual death to spiritual life. And as I've already said, you go from spiritual orphan to a son or a daughter of the Most High. So would you join the family? C come on in. Our arms are open. We would welcome you. And I'm not just talking about the Riverwood family. I'm talking about the Church of God, the global church. We want you to be part of the family. So repent of your sin and believe the gospel. Because this family, this family is going to be better than any biological family, any racial family, any, any connectional family you might find. As good as many of those are, and as sometimes as painful the church can be for some of us, this is the family that God calls us to. Because this is the family that's going to exist for eternity. And so I invite you, come and join us. Because Jesus is worth it. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to create a little bit of space as I close here in prayer. And I'm just going to give you an opportunity to repent of your sin and to put your belief upon Jesus. And so just take a moment to talk to God as we pray. Heavenly Father, right now, I just want to say thank you for those who've listened to this, for those that already know you. May they have a sense that you're calling them deeper and they would have a sense of how you're calling them to love your family. But Lord, right now, I pray for the person that's listening to this that does not know you. 
And, and you've called them to be part of this message, to listen this far so that they could have this moment right here. And so God, I pray that you'd hear them as they, they repent, as they confess their sin to you, and they express their desire to follow you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for those that right now have chosen to become part of your family. They're now your son or your daughter. And Father, I pray that, that this moment wouldn't just be the last moment, that this is just the beginning of you doing a great and deep work in them. Father, it is, is my deepest belief that what this world needs are people who will live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved. And I thank you for the person that right now has put their faith in you and is now beginning this journey of allowing you through your gospel to change them from the broken and imperfect person that they are into that perfect and complete image of Christ. Lord, I pray that everyone listening to this would allow you to do your deep work in them so that they can continue to have that image of Jesus shaped within them uniquely as you've designed them to be so that they can go and take who they are into this world and they can help others find you and follow you. So Father, I thank you for calling those of us who are Jesus followers into your family. Father, help us to live that out. I pray for anyone who's been hurt by the family of God, that you would heal them, you would restore them. And Lord, I pray that Riverwood might be part of that story of helping some people be healed because of the love of Jesus and the grace that you give us. God, make us that type of family. Please protect us through all of the changes that are ahead as we seek to re restart these uh, worship gatherings in person, as we move to a new building, as we have a lot of new things ahead. Would you protect us, Father? Help us to be a healthy family so that we can accomplish what you, our Heavenly Father, calls us to do. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.